0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox Podcast, where we explore all the topics related to heavy metal and chemical detoxification, retoxing, and detox protocols and supplements. And, and today we're talking with my friend Michael McAvoy about a genetic issue called RCCX that impairs people's ability to detox amongst causing all kinds of other different health issues, immune system related disorders, autoimmune disease, hypermobility in the joints, connective tissue issues, and so many other symptoms that make people sick that doctors may be failing to recognize and missing treatment opportunities. So Michael McAvoy he is on the forefront of research and discovery when it comes to functional medicine. And he's gonna be talking to us about this RCCX gene and sequence of genes that interact with each other and uh, the people suffering from multiple health issues, especially autoimmune illness, need to pay attention. Today, we're gonna be talking about how joint hypermobility is a sign of underlying health issues with this RCCX mutation, um, how that connects to other di- different types of symptoms, um, people that can have you know cortisol issues, anxiety, sleep issues, uh, you know, mental health issues like schizophrenia and bipolar, and how people also can be suffering from addiction and, uh, and other health issues. And we're also gonna talk about how RCCX uh, people are so sick due to their impaired ability to detox and the kind of testing to find out if you have RCCX and what you can do about it. For any of you guys interested in heavy metal detoxification and finding out what types of metals that you have, if you need to detox, I created a simple quiz that can give us clues as to the heavy metal levels in your body Please go to heavymetalsquiz.com and take the two-minute quiz, and your results may be surprising to you. You can also find some solutions to heavy metal detox uh, after you take the quiz. So go to heavymetalsquiz.com. Our guest today, Michael McAvoy. He is the founder of Metabolic Healing and co-founder of True Report, which is, uh, you know, testing software, functional medical testing software. And Michael is recognized as a thought leader, systems creator, educator, and integrator of diverse clinical modalities. Michael has created the Metabolic Healing Institute out of the need for deeper clinical applications and clarity of vision in the field of functional medicine and integrative health care. Through unique educational and teaching endeavors, Michael's objective is to assemble a network of the world's top clinicians to meet the demands and challenges of 21st century functional medicine and to implement the analytical tools and frameworks required. You can learn about, more about Michael and work with him or one of his team members at metabolichealing.com. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Wendy. It's great to be here.
0: So you've been doing a lot of interesting research into RCCX. And so let's talk about what that is exactly and why is it significant?
1: So RCCX has been described as the most complex region of the human genome. And um, there's studies going back 25 years or so talking about this is really, really, really a significant um, complex of four really unique genes that do really important things. And um, I got initially involved in this research a couple years ago when somebody had sent me their genome, and I started doing research on their joint hypermobility. And um, that led me down a whole rabbit hole of uncovering research about the connective tissue and what's called the extracellular matrix and then that eventually led me to find out about this RCCX gene cluster um, and its involvement with not only hypermobility but also a very wide spectrum of health conditions that will really explain it does explain many people suffering with complex disease
0: Mm -hmm. what are some of the primary diseases associated with RCCX
1: so as you start to look at the evidence and the the scientific literature as well as the clinical picture, you start to realize that this pattern of this RCCX phenotype, it runs in families. And one of I'll start off by just saying that you know, one of the best ways of of finding out who has this going on is by not only looking at the symptoms and diseases of an individual but also um, just as importantly, the family members. So, um, RCCX can produce a phenotype that has an array of different kinds of diseases and symptoms. The most common are um, autoimmune diseases, and there's a number, there's about 12 or so autoimmune diseases that can run with um, the RCCX um, phenotype. That's especially true of lupus of type one diabetes, of ankylosing spondylitis, of rheumatoid arthritis, of multiple sclerosis, and a handful of others, Crohn's disease, celiac disease can run on the RCCX spectrum. But what's also interesting about that is that as you start to look at this, sometimes the patients with these autoimmune diseases have other diseases or other symptoms which are called, often referred to as comorbidities, where you have two or more existing overlapping diseases. And these diseases are directly related to the the autoimmune disease that they have. The other thing you'll see is that family members will will, um, often present with other types of diseases that are related as well. So some of these other diseases that you'll see that run in families or even in the patients themselves include um, joint hypermobility syndromes such as Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, The hypermobile type, for example, can have... Um, joint hypermobility that can be anywhere. It can be in the hands, the elbows, the shoulders, the the jaw, TMJ, the hips. Um, And this can run in families or in the individual patient themselves with with autoimmune disease. The other diseases that run with RCCX are psychiatric presentations or psychiatric illnesses. And that's especially true of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, And there's often a lot of associations with other people in the family that, have, that are on the autism spectrum. <clears throat> and so as we start to see the, the phenotype, those are the main kind of diseases. But then there's like this whole sweeping cascade of different symptoms that can run with that, such as PCOS and ovarian cysts, endometriosis, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and a whole wide range of other conditions and symptoms.
0: So let's talk about the congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So is that related to excess cortisol secretion and then accompanying anxiety and sleep issues and maybe even addiction uh, that's caused by increased secretion of cortisol?
1: So congenital adrenal hyperplasia is considered to be a rare condition. And um, however, There's actually, I believe there's actually, uh, it's actually grossly underdiagnosed. I think that there's milder versions of congenital adrenal hyperplasia that are plaguing a vastly underreported percentage of the population. The predominant phenotype that has congenital adrenal hyperplasia tends to have low cortisol. And it's because of a mutate, because of a gene mutation within a gene that's located in the RCCX region known as CYP. 21 a2 and this is the gene that um, actually makes cortisol and it also makes aldosterone which is another adrenal hormone and it makes these hormones from um, your progesterone so people that have congenital adrenal hyperplasia the vast majority of these people they tend to have very low cortisol and what winds up happening is because they can't make cortisol sufficiently the progesterone bottlenecks and it goes and it makes your, your androgen hormones like your testosterone and your androsterone and androstenedione And so consequently, one of, the, one of the consequences of congenital adrenal hyperplasia is PCOS and ovarian cysts. And that's because of the high androgen profile. Now, there's a smaller subset of patients with congenital adrenal hyperplasia um, who um, actually have high cortisol. So there can actually be different CAH phenotypes and so if it's
0: someone that's producing too much cortisol or consistently i mean the, what are some of the symptoms that they're going to have
1: well if cortisol is not being processed or made in in a correct way um this is it could be high or low um anxiety is one of the most pressing and uh, obvious symptoms of that um mood disorders would be a, another obvious um presentation one of the things i want to point out is that Um, This is really, really interesting stuff, is that the gene that actually makes cortisol is not just localized to the adrenal glands. It's actually also found in the brain and in the nervous system. And so that suggests that there is a direct relationship between the brain, the limbic system, which is a part of the brain that processes emotions and memories. Um, In other regions of the brain, like the hippocampus and the hypothalamus and the, the, the spinal cord itself, Contain CYP21A2 RNA, and so it suggests really strongly that cortisol has a very significant role in these um, glands in our nervous system.
0: Yeah, very very interesting. So, talk about some of the functions of the RCCX gene. So, what are we
1: uh, like? What do they do exactly? So, what you need to know in is that the four genes that make up the RCCX region they are very unique because they they tend to behave like one gene rather than four separate genes. So usually when you have a problem in one gene, it's affecting all of the other three genes. And that's why there's a lot of the overlapping conditions and diseases and symptoms that run in individuals as well as in families. The other thing that's really, really unusual and anomalous about these four genes is that they can overlap with one another, meaning that the, the genes which are normally separate actually share different regions of each other, so they can, they can, they can cross react that way, and this can affect their transcription and translation, which are DNA processes to make proteins and enzymes. Um, but the actual genes that make the RCCX region are really, really powerful and important for a lot of different physiological um, processes in the body. The first gene is known as TNXB, and this is called Tenaskin X and TNXB is one of the most um, abundant, what's called glycoproteins, so it's a a sugar protein that's found in the extracellular matrix. And the extracellular matrix is basically the, the connective tissue and all of the polysaccharides and collagen and proteoglycans that hold together all of the cells and all of the organs and all of the tissues. And your extracellular matrix is found all over the body. It's it's ubiquitously found in in every region of the body. And it it turns out that the extracellular matrix does many, many important things for regulating how our body works. And that includes – it interacts with the nervous system, with the immune system, with the endocrine system. And it regulates how we process stem cells. It regulates how we process um, certain cytokines and different growth factors. So it's really important for the whole physiology. And when you have – a, a mutations in the Tenascin XT and XB gene, you have a hypermobility. You can also have skin hyperelasticity where it feels like the skin, you can actually see a person's skin just feels like it's looks like it's actually kind of coming off of them. It's not being held together. So these are associated with the Tenascin X mutation and deficiencies and problems in that RCCX gene. Um, so that's why there's this really strong hypermobility link to all of these other conditions and comorbidities we see that run with the RCCX phenotype. Um, The second gene, Wendy, on the RCCX cluster is known as CYP21A2. And this is the gene that, um, as I've mentioned, it takes your um, hormone progesterone, 17-hydroxyprogesterone, and it converts it into your adrenal hormones, cortisol and your other adrenal hormone, aldosterone. Um, cortisol, as many people know, is the most important stress hormone of the body. And it also has a lot of really important roles in modulating the immune system and it interact cortisol interacts with a lot of other really important hormones like our thyroid hormone, for example. And so people that have thyroid issues often have adrenal hormone issues and vice versa. Um, aldosterone is another adrenal hormone that's get, that gets made by the CYP21A2 gene in the RCCX cluster. But it's one, aldosterone is one hormone that doesn't get a lot of attention and press, but it's one that's really, really, really important. And one of the main functions of aldosterone is to regulate our body's sodium. <clears throat> and sodium plays a really important role in our electrolyte system in keeping our cells hydrated and properly um, electrically charged. And so if we don't make enough aldosterone we don't retain our sodium we're chronically dehydrated and as you know wendy many of many of the clients and patients that have chronic illness are chronically dehydrated their tissues don't hold water and salt and as a result their body doesn't work right their cells don't work right so um, that's the second gene on the rccx region is the cyp21a2 gene as i as i mentioned the other really interesting thing about that is that it's all, that, that that gene is also found, the RNA of that gene is found in the brain and in the central nervous system, which suggests a, a direct role of, of cortisol in the brain and nervous system. The third gene on the cluster is one of the most interesting genes, and it's known as complement C4. And complement C4 is a really, really important, and as we're starting to learn from the scientific research, Complement C4 does a lot of really important things. So the first thing that Complement C4 does is it is a part of what's called the innate immune system. And so the innate immune system is is actually the oldest part of our immune system. Um, The innate immune system is the first line of defense that will look for different pathogens and that are circulating throughout the body and it will basically grab onto these pathogens and create these what are called um, complement protein complexes. And so the complement C4 is one integral part of um, the complement immune system. So we know that the complement C4 gene plays a really important role in chronic disease. A lot of the the really smart integrative um, medicine and functional medicine doctors today they, they run testing on a, um, a protein known as complement C4A, and they do this a lot in the, the mold, in the, what's known as mold and SIRS, as well as in patients that they suspect that have Lyme disease <clears throat> because the C4A levels tend to be elevated in those patients. So complement C4 is actually the gene, the protein that makes the C4A and the C4B, and then the pathway, it, you know, it kind of splits off, and then it works with the antibody system to neutralize different kinds of bacterial and viral pathogens. So um, if people that, people that have variations of the C4 gene or deficiencies of the C4 protein caused by the mutations of the c 4 gene, they tend to have these different autoimmune diseases. So for example, lupus, systemic lupus erythematosus um, is probably the disease that's most associated with complement C4 deficiency. In the scientific literature, 75% of patients with lupus have shown to be C4 deficient. And there's a lot of other autoimmune diseases associated with complement C4. Ankylosing spondylitis, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, um, Crohn's disease, celiac disease. So there's a ton of different diseases that can be caused by the body's inability to work, the immune system's inability to work right because of not enough um, complement C4. Um, but the other really interesting and important thing that has been discovered not too long ago is that the complement c4 protein is actually one of the most important proteins that regulates the, the what's called the pruning of our brain synapses okay and so a good analogy to think of what the pruning of brain synapses is is you have like a fruit tree and or any kind of a tree that for that matter in order for that fruit tree to bear fruit it has to be pruned it has to be trimmed on a regular basis and if it doesn't get pruned you can have problems in how the fruit gets made it might not even be made at all and so the same thing is really true in our brain and our nervous system <clears throat> and a lot of the diseases that are associated with with aberrant synaptic pruning include schizophrenia bipolar disorder autism even Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease involve aberrant synaptic pruning. And sure enough, as you start to do the research of the scientific literature on complement C4, you find that it's actually one of the most significant proteins that is involved in these different diseases. Um, there were actually two different studies that looked at um, variations of the complement C4B gene, and they found, and, and, and we studying autism spectrum, and they found in these two different studies almost the identical thing was that about 40% of autistic patients had null alleles of the complement C4B gene. That's a huge whopping statistical association. And we know that from other autism research that um, autism features um, aberrant synaptic pruning in the brain, too many brain synapses that aren't being pruned appropriately. And the RCCX cluster is one of the central genes, central regions of the genome that influences this process of synaptic pruning. But, Wendy, it even gets more and more interesting because um, a couple of different things that are going on here that are really, really crazy um, is that one of the regions of that C4 gene actually controls how you make cortisol, how your adrenal glands make cortisol. So in other words, there's a direct relationship between our adrenal hormone activity and our immune system's ability to regulate the complement pathways and how that's clearing pathogens and toxins and um, pruning the synapses in the brain. All of these things are directly tied together. The other really fascinating thing, um, Wendy, that a lot of listeners should, should, might even know about is this whole relationship to what are called endogenous retroviruses. Yes. And uh, you've probably heard a lot about the work of Dr. Judy Mikovits and Dr. Dietrich Klinghart and others that are now really becoming very vocal about these, and these these retroviruses that are potentially associated with a huge spectrum of different diseases.
0: Yeah. We have had Dr. Judy Mikovits on the show talking about how all vaccines contain retroviruses that then wreak havoc on our immune systems and our health. And by a lot of people suffering from mystery illness, it may be these retroviruses that are impacting them that are going undetected by conventional medical doctors.
1: Yeah, that's a really, really interesting and important arm of research that's only beginning to really get attention. Um, and the work of Dr. Klinghardt and Dr. Mikevitz is really, really significant and really important for understanding some of the core mechanisms of, of complex disease. Um, there's two different kinds of retroviruses. so. First of all, a retrovirus is not the same thing as a DNA virus, so um, DNA viruses are very common and we all have them. We've all been exposed to things like Epstein-Barr virus and many of us may have been exposed to other herpes simplex viruses like genital herpes, HSV-1, HSV-2 or HSV-1 oral herpes or cytomegalovirus. Those are all what are called DNA viruses. And uh, there's a, but there's a second class of viruses known as retroviruses, and retroviruses are 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 known as RNA viruses. So they're slightly different because they reverse transcribe um, <clears throat> versus um, positively transcribe, which is a process I won't go into. But they're different. So there's actually two different kinds of retroviruses. Um, the first kind of retrovirus is, and what's what we call exogenous, meaning that it's it's comes from outside of our body, like the most common exogenous retrovirus is HIV. Um, and some of the other ones that Dr. Mikovits has pointed out in her um, lab research are the XMRV um, retrovirus and the HTLV-1 exogenous. These are exogenous retroviruses which may very well be contaminated in vaccines that are being injected into people. The second type of a retrovirus is known as an, an, as an Known as an endogenous retrovirus, meaning that it 's already inside of our DNA, so a really fascinating thing as you start to research this is that part of human evolution a really important part of human evolution involves um, having been infected in early parts of our evolution by these different retroviruses and they're they 're in our genome there 's maybe ten to thirteen percent of our own geno- genome our own DNA contain these Endogenous retroviruses, and most of them are silenced. They don't don't express. However, there's been a lot of different scientific research that shows that the the expression of these retroviruses in our genome can actually come out of hiding and actually show up in the blood. And this is happening in autism and psychiatric illness. It's it's been shown to happen in in autoimmune disease and, and especially in cancer. And so there's kind of this pursuit of trying to understand what are these endogenous retroviruses doing. Well, what's really interesting is that the the uh, the, the complement C4 gene located within the RCCX cluster, the C4 gene actually contains in it one of these endogenous retroviruses known as HERV-K. And there's been some some papers recently published that show the association between um, the different genomic variations of the C4 gene in schizophrenia. <clears throat> and Dr. Klinghart recently presented some um, some information at a conference that I attended that suggested that in schizophrenic patients, there may be fluctuations between these retroviruses expressing during episodes of psychosis versus when you're feeling more normal or less psychotic, these retroviruses don't express as much. And we know that the C4 gene is directly linked to that HERV-K retrovirus, So it very well may be the case that both of these things are directly related to how the brain is functioning.
0: Yeah, and so can we talk about any kind of tests so that you may have piqued people's interest on, is this me, do I have RCCX? What kind of tests are available to test the RCCX related genes or their loss of functions?
1: So because the RCCX gene cluster is the most complex part of our DNA, um, this is not something that's actually really available to be clinically tested yet. There are, some, there are a couple labs in the world that can do probing of the RCCX gene cluster um, to identify what's called the copy number of the, of the region. But these labs are really specialized and they don't really function for um, clinical purposes. It's more for research so um, in, even in 23andMe, they don't have the, the SNPs or the SNPs for the major RCCX genes because it's so complicated to sequence it. Um, so unfortunately, we don't have that technology available for clinical use yet. Um, however, I'm looking for research funding to, to, um, to try to develop and to move this area of research forward. And I have some initial. There's some things that are happening. Some wheels are starting to turn, so that we can start really getting bigger population data on, on genomic um, research for RCCX. So what we're what we're using now from a clinical standpoint, and being a clinician myself, what I'm looking to do is to try to find the people that have the most likely um, associations. So we already know based on the science who is likely the the most obvious candidates for for the RCCX, genotyping, and even clinical work. Um, what we can do is we can look at the big overall trait of different symptoms, diseases that run in the family as well as in the in the individual patient to get the overall picture of who has this. The other thing that we can start doing, and we, what my team has already started to do, is to actually look at some basic um, laboratory markers that could help us to understand this. So, for example, we can look at the complement- um, protein C4 levels. We can actually look at that and see if it, it runs low. We can look at the 24-hour urinary cortisol and to see if that runs low. We can run some other specialty tests like um, some immune um, T cell markers, the CD24, cd 20 CD4, CD25, T regulatory cell flow cytometry. Um, and we can run those in combination with the TGF, tr- tr- TGF beta 1, and the complement C4 we can we can run a, an assortment of different really specialized tests to get a picture of what's going on with an individual and that's what we're doing in our, our clinical work right now at the moment.
0: And so what what are some of the primary therapies that you're using with this client population that you identify as potentially having the R2CX mutations or cluster of mutations and um, are any of them effective if someone thinks they may have this genotype?
1: Yeah. That's a great question, and um, as a clinician who works with a lot of clients that have complex illness, um, I'm always looking to figure out what can I do to help them to optimize their health? What's, What's the best and important types of therapies? So first of all, what you need to know, and you know this too, Wendy, is that you have to work on an individual level and finding out, meeting a person exactly where they are in their own health journey. Um, and the first thing that we need to appreciate is that the people that have this going on are some of the sickest people in the population. And um, I've had people come up to me and say they, – they start crying. They say, you've just figured out my entire family for with the suffering that we've had for, for years and years and years. Um, and, and so th- these people really exist, and they exist in a really significant way, and they're really sick. Um, they, the RCCX phenotypes are very, very susceptible to environmental toxins. Um, and, and, the first thing that I do when looking at these, this phenotype is finding out which toxins are the biggest culprits that are affecting them because their immune system and their, their endocrine system and their cortisol doesn't work is the same as it does for other people. Their connective tissue and their, their extracellular matrix doesn't work, um, for other people. They don't have the ability to detoxify and to protect themselves from the onslaught of environmental factors and toxins. And so I'm always looking to evaluate what infections, what toxins are present. We often find mold is a huge factor. These people are often very susceptible to chronic inflammatory response from mold and mycotoxins, which is now really a common thing that's being uncovered in the functional medicine world. They are often also suffering from chronic viral infections as well as Lyme disease and Lyme disease co-infections. One of the things that I found in my presentation to the Forum for Integrative Medicine or that I, that I gave recently was that there's a number of different kinds of Lyme disease infections and co-infections that can cause a person to have hypermobi- joint hypermobility. So Bartonella and, um, and Borrelia, which is Lyme, these can cause hypermobility. And so if somebody is already hypermobile because of this RCCX cluster, it can even cause more havoc on their connective tissue. So the first thing that I do is always look for what are the toxins. And so we can look at heavy metals like aluminum and mercury because the connective tissue is gonna be directly affected by these heavy metals. So um, once we identify that, we start to like piece together what needs to happen first. We start to say, okay, well, if there's if these viruses or infections are present, we need to include that as part of the therapy in some way. Um, the second thing we start to look at is exactly what are the individual, how is RCCX expressing um, in this person directly? Um, because not everybody with this has autoimmune disease, although that's probably the most common thing. Um, some people in the family might have it, but the, the individual client or patient might have Uh, psychiatric illness, for example, but not necessarily lupus, but the sister might have lupus, for example. So it tends to run like that. So if somebody has an autoimmune component, um, the first thing that I start looking at is let's look at the complement C4 protein level, and we can do some other specialized tests like there's a test known as the CH50, and this this helps to evaluate the other other parts of the complement immune system that might be deficient. So we then start to work on the gastrointestinal tract um, because the C4 protein will affect immune tolerance. If if you don't have enough complement C4, you don't have enough T-regulatory cells. And the T-regulatory cells prevents autoimmunity from happening. And so we can actually support the T-regulatory system by using some really high-quality kinds of probiotics like the bacillus subtilis, we can use serum bovine immunoglobulins, we can use short chain fatty acids. We've got to modulate the gastrointestinal tract. And so we start there. We also really pay a lot of attention to the, um, the, the electrolyte balance, because electrolytes play a really important role in this whole picture, right? And so to kind of take it back um, to the whole connective tissue component, remember that in order for our body to work correctly, our cells, our tissues, our, our connected tissue, in order for that to work right, We've got to have an electrical charge, you know, Wendy. I can't emphasize enough how important this is and how overlooked this is. Um, the dehydration of our cells and tissues is a primary cause of illness and pain, and and um, loss of integrity in our in our body. And so we can use some specific tests to evaluate the electrolyte activity. We can we started running recently. Um, A test called a urinary aldosterone. So we can actually measure aldosterone in the urine to see if people are deficient. And what we find is is that once we start modulating aldosterone, this can be transformative for people. Everything clears up. Their skin, their immune system starts to improve. Their their body is more hydrated because it can retain salt and electrolytes better. So we have to really pay attention to that hydration component. Because it really dep- it really can can set off problems if it's not happening. Yeah,
0: in that same conversation, you know, mercury toxicity can inhibit the production of antidiuretic hormone, or and you know cause cause it to produce more, and then people have increased urinary output, which can be really aggravating and irritating, and they drink water and they're trying to hydrate, but they're just urinating it all out. They just. They don't, uh, the mercury is causing that problem. And they also don't either don't consume enough minerals or uh, vegetable juices, or they drink the wrong water that's not structured properly. So there, there's so many different things that can be working against uh, hydration.
1: Absolutely. Aluminum is another one of those heavy metals. Aluminum is a trivalent cationic metal that can cause the blood cells to become clumped together. Um, just like our Wi-Fi radiation can do the same kind of thing to our to our tissue and cell hydration, so there's a lot of things going on that can negatively affect how our cells are hydrated. And so we really focus on that. When we really hit that, sometimes that can be the most important thing with some people. So um, we pay attention to gut modulating the immune system, the gut, the the hydration, and we can also really modulate um, the stress response. And we also, we often find, especially with more of the psychiatric presentation of the RCCX phenotype, we find that these people tend to really be very emotionally sensitive and highly empathic, very sensitive to other people's energy around them. And they're very susceptible to PTSD and to anxiety disorders. And a lot of it comes down to how the brain is programmed to work from a really, really young age. We know that the amygdala in the hippocampus, which are regions in the brain that process emotions and memories, these parts of the brain have cortisol receptors. So they're going to be really sensitive to the stress response. And so um, if there's been trauma in a person's life and if there's been emotional um issues that are going on, these have to be addressed on some level. And from um just from a basic bio, you know, from a therapeutic level, we can use Therapies like EMDR and DNRS and emotional processing therapies to help to kind of get some of this emotional trauma out of the system. We can also use things like CBD and and cannabis and cannabidiol and an inhibitory, you know, balancing GABA and glutamate um, to, to kind of calm the nervous system and to kind of bring the endocrine system in the brain Back into a state of calm and parasympathetic balance.
0: Yeah, and so for anyone listening that is suffering from, you know, mystery illness or chronic illness and no conventional or even many functional medical doctors are not able to get at the root cause of it. Um, you know, are you working with people presently? Are you taking on new clients to, to work with people to try to figure out what's going on with them?
1: Yeah, absolutely we are. And we're, we're looking to really um, to, to have people that think that they might have this RCCX phenotype to contact us directly through our site because we'd like to, we'd like to work with you and possibly study you and to, and to help you because we're still learning about this. This is an incredibly complex and really, really important part of our genome that does not behave like the rest of our genetics. And we know that these people exist we know what they look like. We know the kinds of diseases and illnesses they suffer with, and we also are starting to see the kinds of therapies that we need to start to implement in order to support their body.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Michael, I have been on the edge of my seat the whole podcast, and uh, I'm sure the listeners have as well, and this is, it's always a joy talking to you because you're always doing so much research and constantly learning and educating yourself and reading research and going to conferences. and and interacting with the you know top people in their field to pick their brains as well. So thanks so much for contributing to the conversation here on the
1: Myers Detox podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Wendy.
0: Oh, and on that note, so can you talk a little bit about RCCX and how maybe that can impact one's ability to detox? We don't want to forget that important piece of the puzzle.
1: Absolutely. Um because one of the things about detoxification that we need to really pay attention to is our connective tissue. And Wendy, I know I've talked with you about this before. And we've had a really, we've had a really good conversation before about how toxic heavy metals like mercury and aluminum and cadmium. So these are positively charged toxic metals. They have a plus charge. And so basically, anything with a positive charge will will grab onto anything with a negative charge. So <clears throat> what's really fascinating is that our connective tissue is made up of negatively charged sulfur, negatively charged sulfate. So that includes um, chondroitin sulfate, that includes our heparin sulfate, that includes glucosamine sulfate. These are the components of our connective tissue that have a negative, a very strong negative charge and will be attracted to positively charged toxic metals. Now, there's no shortage of aluminum in a person's body. I can guarantee anybody that right now, that anyone that's listening to this is loaded with aluminum. And how do I know? Because we've been running tests for over 10 years, and we find aluminum in every person's body. That's the and same if, with
0: Dr. Bruce Jones, our medical director, and myself. Every single person has aluminum. If you're doing if, hair, urine, and the stool testing, every if single you're not
1: If you're not showing aluminum on a test, you're just not excreting it, and that's even a bigger problem. So, and most people are also toxic with, with lead, with cadmium, with other toxic metals also. All of these toxic metals are going to interfere with your immune system, as well as with your connective tissue, not to mention your brain and nervous system. Because the RCCX phenotype is not, they're, they're programmed genetically differently, these different physiological systems don't work the same way, they are highly susceptible to the onslaught of toxins and there's, there's no way that the environment we're living in is going to get any less toxic. So the RCCX people that we work with, we have to really be proactive about addressing the toxicity component on a regular basis. And that was that's one of the first things that we do. Mold toxicity is another one that um, is a huge toxin that people are exposed to. So all the different chemicals and heavy metals in the environment, as well as mold and mycotoxins that we're being exposed to, that we're breathing in, that we're drinking, we're inhaling, we're ingesting on a moment-by-moment basis, are, are affecting our physiology in very powerful ways. And that includes our connective tissue. That includes how our immune system works. Remember that it's our immune system that's involved in detox. It has to gobble up toxins in, 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 the, in, the, in the blood and in the tissues. And the lymphatic system is a part of our extracellular matrix. Without our lymphatic system, forget it. You can't detoxify anything.
0: Fantastic. Well, Michael, again, thanks for coming on the show and giving us a little, some few tips on detoxification and how some people are not detoxing because we we know that our sickest clients are having trouble with detoxification. Their detox pathways aren't working correctly for uh, so many different reasons. All of the above that we talked today on the podcast. So uh, it just speaks to you. like the more ill you are, you tend to have more toxins as well. So Michael, again, tell us where the listeners can find you and work with you.
1: So if anybody out there that's listening is interested in this kind of work and may even think that that this fits their, their family profile or their profile, you can go to our website. It's www.metabolichealing.com. That's metabolichealing.com. And my website is devoted to um, cutting-edge scientific research and, and providing um, very high-quality content for the readers We also do um, clinical one-on-one consulting, and we also work with um, clinicians. So if you're a doctor, if you're a healthcare practitioner, if you're a nutritionist, a dietitian, and you're looking to get more cutting-edge educational um, courses and training, we provide that to our clinicians as well.
0: Yeah, you have lots of practitioner courses.
1: Yeah, we have five practitioner courses, and um, the fifth one that was just made is on the RCCX gene cluster.
0: What are the other courses that you have?
1: Um, The other courses are functional and nutritional blood chemistry analysis, uh, mastering functional laboratory test analysis, blood sugar and insulin resistance, and then uh, methylation and MTHFR.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. I've taken one of your courses before too, and uh, amazing education that you have provided for practitioners and and software also that you've developed as well. Um, So everyone listening, you know, please go to Michael's website. I I encourage you to, you know, read on his site. He has so much cutting edge stuff, uh, amazing courses. It's a a fantastic resource that you created.
1: Thanks, Wendy. I appreciate it.
0: And everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Myers Detox podcast, where we explore every topic related to heavy metal and chemical detoxification and symptoms and illness as well, and testing. So thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week.